Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destinations for interviews, conversations, and readings with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. Now, as promised, this is a seasonal, holiday sort of episode. There won't be any singing of carols, though, or mention of Santa or Rudolph. Really, it's just a holiday episode because I had the chance to talk to Bill Richardson about his book, I Saw Three Ships. I Saw Three Ships was a finalist for the 2020 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. In the introduction to the book, Bill comments on the fact that his book is a Christmas book only in that the stories take place around the holidays. The book is a collection of eight linked stories, including characters that appear and reappear in each one of them. The book is set in a place that is near and dear to Bill's heart, Vancouver's West End. While the writing includes Bill's signature humor, there's a lot of exploration of loss and transition, and the many complicated emotions that often come out at the holidays. Bill is the author of numerous books for children and adults. He's also well known as a former CBC radio broadcaster. And in fact, early versions of some of the stories from I Saw Three Ships appeared on CBC. Bill starts our conversation with a reading from I Saw Three Ships. This is a reading from uh, the last story in I Saw Three Ships. Uh, The name of the story is Sin, Error, Pining. Uh, All of the stories take their titles from uh, Christmas songs, either in the uh, contemporary canon or in the more uh, sacred one. And uh, what's happening in the story is that uh, Gary, who's a character who recurs throughout the stories in the book, has left Vancouver, left his long relationship with a man named Philip, and he's moved back to his hometown, which is Brandon, Manitoba. And he's living with his mother, who's uh, among the many who have been conscripted by the army of forgetfulness. And uh, Jean, Jean is her name. They're in church. It's Christmas Eve. This is where they've been, the two of them together, for every year of Gary's, uh, by now, long life upon the earth. He's he's 59 when this story is taking place. And uh, Jean and her now distracted way is going through her purse. She's found a cache of fortune cookies and she's lining them up on the the ledge of the pew in front of her. Gary takes a quick census of the cookies arrayed before them, 13 all told, each of them curled around some fraying, fading nugget of wisdom, who can say what? Happiness will be yours. Wisdom will bring you wealth more surely than wealth will bring you wisdom. You will take an exciting voyage to an unknown land. He's visited by a memory recently impressed of a morning drive just this past August the 23rd. It was Jean's birthday. She had a hankering to see, perhaps for the last time, the land her grandparents had farmed. She'd spent her girlhood summers there, and that time was still deeply rooted in the folds of her brain, those furrows as yet unsalted. They headed out early, right after breakfast, light traffic, high hopes. Jean was asleep before they left the city, her head bowed as though in prayer. It was a peculiar day, weather-wise, unsettling. Smoke was billowing in from the northwest. Once again, all the forests were burning. It was foggy, too, the first of the brigadoon mists that signal summer's end. A real pea super, said Gary, 
unoriginally to Jean, unresponsive, a dozing bobblehead. They drove in the direction of Surus, visibility near zero on a two-lane highway that was cratered with potholes. Jean slept on, snoring slightly, and Gary remembered the West Coast foghorns, their warning, no go, no go, their baritone adumbrations of danger so different from the more familiar tenor of a far-off train whistle dopplering across the wide bowl of the prairies. Foghorns presaged shipwreck, drowning. Train whistles were rich with the promise of distance, escape and also of return. Gary came back. He came back for good. He said farewell to the deep blue sea. He returned to the devil he knew. Distracted by fog and by his own musings, Gary missed the turnoff on the highway onto the unpaved road they traveled to reach the old homestead. He doubled back, located the exit, slowed up to accommodate gravel. Jean never stirred, was dead to the world, when a doe emerged from the starboard field. The dough was exactly the color of whatever grain grew there, ripened, harvest ready, wheat, probably, maybe rye, Jean would have known. Gary can reliably identify only canola or flax, corn on a good day, nor is he in the know about deer. He couldn't have made an informed guess about whether she was running to or running from or simply running for running's sake, for the joy, for the hell of it, running because she was able. She was nowhere to be seen, then she was there fully gestated, miraculously spawned by the mating of fog and field. The path she followed, whether practiced or spontaneous, was cut on the bias. She made no alteration to the angle of her course when she hit the road, didn't scruple to look both ways. Gary pumped the brakes. The Subaru threatened to fishtail, might even have spun out, have landed in the ditch, overturned even, had even driving any faster. Gary prevailed. Jean slept. The deer, whether protectively or out of curiosity, broke the angle of her run, described for what couldn't have been more than a couple of seconds but seemed an eternity, a parallel path with the car, kept a pace, might even have decelerated, was so close that Gary could have reached out, could have touched her muscular haunch. He looked her in the eye. She fired up her jetpack, slept her whole body length once, twice, a third time, gave a quick over-the-shoulder glance, cut directly in front of the car, resumed her angle of flight, was gone in an instant, swallowed by fog, by field, by smoke. Jean woke. Where are we? Almost there. Did I miss anything? No, love. I missed you, though. You will have a close call. Miracles await those who are ready for them. Not everything means something. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. I wanted to talk a little bit in the introduction to the book. You talk about how the stories are, they, they're Christmas stories, but really they're only Christmas stories in that they take place at Christmas. And I was curious about using Christmas as the backdrop to these stories. Yeah, that was in, in a way an accident of the assignment. And, and yeah, I think, I think what I say is that Christmas exists in these stories mostly as a, a sort of environmental condition. Uh, the, the, all of these stories were written uh, on commission for places I was working for at the time. So that would have been either the CBC or the Reader's Digest where I was a columnist for a few not very glorious years. And uh, like, likewise, the Georgia Strait where I had a, a connection for a few years. 
and and uh, so Christmas time would come around, and and somebody who worked as a producer or an editor would think, oh well, time for a story, and then they would they would ask me to write one. So uh, the, the stories were in in the true sense of the word occasional. I mean, in, in every sense of the word occasional, I mean, they, 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 they happen inter intermittently, but always for that specific occasion. Uh, so that's, that's really how. I mean, what, what happened really with this was, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, dull as it is, I, I took it into my head a couple of years ago that because I was feeling a little bit stalled in, in, my, in my writing life, well, in, in every aspect of my life, truly, uh, I thought perhaps if I got myself an agent, <laughs> all this would be different i have had an agent in the past but i brought the poor guy no joy uh, any, anyway um i contacted an agent uh via a friend somebody who uh, deals with um uh, both adult writing and children's writing because I, I i dabble in both and she was very kind uh very courteous and she said have you got anything that you can show me and, and a perfectly reasonable question and I had a few things that I was working on, but nothing that I really wanted to show. But I, why, why I felt the need at this moment to, I think it was just to, I, I, felt, I felt that I had to give myself a sign that I was doing something that was active or maybe getting an agent would do it. Anyway, I said, well, I have all these Christmas stories I've been thinking about revising. And she said, send them on. Stuart McLean did very well last year with his Christmas stories. And I said, uh, well, these stories are a long way away from Stuart's stories, which, which I like very much. I mean, Stuart was a wonderful writer. I said, his are, are really wholesome and, and these stories that I write are not. And she said, send them anyway. So I did. And she got back to me very quickly and she said, you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> 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 no, one, no one would ever publish these stories. And, uh, and that, that was the end of my connection with the agent. It, it wasn't cold and callous. She was, she was, just, she was being courteous and businesslike and, and, and she's, she's a great person. Anyway. As I had done the work on putting these things together, I began to look at them again a little more closely. And I thought, well, maybe there's a way they can work. And so I, I selected the ones that are in the book and I, I, I began to rework them and retool them and try to get them to a situation where I, I thought of them as being tenants in a building where they were, uh, where all their voices could be heard in an air well. And I wanted this, I wanted to find stories that would echo one another. And and uh, so that's why I picked the ones I did. And then I, re I, I reworked them so that, the, the, the characters uh, who, who recurred, recurred more often, I tried to develop their relationships a little bit. And uh, they, they, they were largely, largely re rewritten. They, they, they were much longer apart from anything else. And then Talon Books, uh, bless their hearts, agreed to, to publish them. So that was how that happened. Yeah. It was interesting in reading them because I, I read them recently and, you know, I've been watching like everyone, I'm watching Netflix a lot right now. And you see all these holiday stories and holiday movies come out. And it, my husband and I watched one the other day. And I was thinking about that idea that you had of the, you know, and it's it being kind of this environmental situation. And I started thinking, it really is in a lot of holiday stories that, yes, they're, they're holiday movies, but the stories that happen in them could happen really any time of the year. It's just something like it's a pressure cooker that, you know, Christmas brings out the best and worst in people for whatever reason. Yeah. Christmas, Christmas stories are kind of like prison stories in a way. I mean, they're, they're, they're about people who are brought together who wouldn't necessarily be brought together. And they're, they're in a, a tight set of circumstances <laughs> for, for maybe a short period of time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not um, everything about, Christmas suggests fiction because 
emotions are heightened. It's a time when um, our expectations are rarely met. It's, it's a time when people gather and stories are told and memories are revisited. And yeah, it, it, of course, narratively, it's a very, very, very rich time just because that happens. Uh, the, I, but I, I also was, I am interested in questions of faith um, because I, I don't know, I've, I've wrestled with it in, in, in my own life. When I say wrestled, I, I, I've gone through periods of time when I've been more or less churchy, essentially. Uh, now, and I don't see this changing. I, I'm not at all. I've sort of moved away from the whole thing. And, and I was never very, very deeply involved. Nonetheless, I've always found the, the stories and the liturgy and the music and every, everything else that's grown up around Western religion, which is the religious, th th that's a tradition in, in which I was, you know, immersed, not really immersed. It wasn't, I never really paddled much out of the shallow end. But I, I, I was interested to, to think about this idea about what, what do you do as a secular person at a religious time, at a time that is essentially religious. And what do you do as a secular person if you have an experience that once upon a time you could have pegged on the board of religion that is an experience of um, epiphany or transcendence? If you don't have that, then how, how do you explain it? So that was the other reason that I was, when I looked at all the stories that I've written, and there were, I mean, there were many more than are in this book, um, I. I chose all the ones where uh, there was some little moment of, yeah, epiphany, but a secular epiphany. And what, is, what does that mean? I, I don't think anybody will find an answer to that question in the book. And in some ways too, I'm, I'm also mindful that it's, um, it's a bit of an easy narrative out, the epiphany, right? <laughs> it's, it's like, oh my God, it's all a dream. <laughs> Not so dissimilar from that, really. So, yeah. in, in part, I think my, my reliance on this as a, 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 a plot pivot just comes down to writerly laziness and <laughs> absence of convention. The other themes that kind of come across in the stories are the characters, just like as you in the story you read, um, are kind of grappling with loss and change. And there's a lot of people characters reflecting on what was and mm -hmm. i i uh, read one review that kind of commented on the stories being allergic in a way and but there's a lot of humor in them too like i was reading the passages about bonnie and her miniskirts out to my husband because i just thought they were hilarious but i was curious about the pairing of those like these feel these deep feelings of loss and mourning but also humor at the same time uh-huh yeah, the humor thing is just something that I, I seem unable to help. And again, it's not, it's never anything that I set out to do. I think I, irony is, it probably is a kind of defense mechanism. I, I, I don't discount that, that possibility. It, when, when you ironize things, if that's the word, it is now, it, it, it's, it is a way of keeping sadness, regret, at, at something like bay. It, it's a shield. 
So maybe that's why, maybe I just rather not grapple with things, but also there's just, I think a quality of personality that comes out in that. I've always, I've always been that way. I'm 65 now, I'm not gonna change. But also these stories are about people who, yeah, I think I, I talked, it's, I haven't looked at this book for a year now. And, and so I, I think I've, I've forgotten things. I know I've forgotten things, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that in, in the uh, introduction, I, I talk a little bit about how the, 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 the characters, although the stories are not autobiographical, um, episodically there, there, are, there are bits in the stories that re reflect the time in which they were written. Um, I mean, this was three months before, well, when I was writing the introduction, it was five or six months before the pandemic. It was, nobody, nobody was thinking of it, it was unheard of yet. But I was talking about how I've never been aware of a news cycle that wasn't invaded in some way by news of a plague, whether it was the, the AIDS pandemic or the plague of leaky condos or the opioids crisis. There's always been some, something slightly plague-like, uh, sometimes epidemiologically traceable and sometimes not, that uh, has, has been just, just in the air over the whole time I've been in Vancouver. And that was something that struck me when I went back to look at these stories, is that that was, that was a, a strain that, that ran throughout them. It was kind, kind of a theme. So that, that lends them, I think, the quality of something that might be slightly elegiac. But also the characters, I, I was writing about people who were more or less my own age and more or less in my own set of circumstances at the time that I was writing these, uh, first my mother and then after a longish period of time, my father went through their own end of life phases. So uh, with, with my mother, th this happened when I was at a distance. I didn't, uh, my, my father was there as her principal caregiver. And uh, so I, I visited as often as I could and, and, and was a support as much as I could be at a distance. But then when, when it came his time to walk walk that path. I, I moved back to Winnipeg and spent the last two years of his life uh, as a witness. And these characters are going through the same kind they're all going through the same things with their uh, with their parents. Each of them, Philip and Gary and Bonnie are the three characters. Um, and each of them has a chance to tell the story of his her connection with his her mother. And uh, it's it's always it's always a mother in these cases. Fathers are pretty absent in the stories. So, uh, of course, when that happens, and you think back on your life, and you realize that when your parents were the age you are now, you were already a grown person and well established. And 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 then you you think automatically, yes, and it won't be long until I'm in the situation in which they now find themselves. And when you are childless, it just it's an occasion for reflection, that's all. And, and there's not really a whole lot of cheer to be found there. So how do you handle it? Uh, in, re realistically, maybe with irony, you know? Uh, so that's, I think that's where that quality comes from. I mean, I think the stories are quite dark, but I, uh, maybe I'm just imputing to them more than uh, somebody else would find there. Maybe I want them to be more, I don't know, literary than in fact they are it's always the bugaboo of somebody who's who's known as a humorist you know you 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 always you have to accept the the certainty that you're going to be spending your writerly life at the children's table uh, 
And if, if you present light, then people tend not to take you seriously okay with that. But it's, it's, just, it's just always been my concern to, to write as well as I can. Yeah, I think I always think that, um, and I found this in your stories that humor is often for people going through challenging times or grief or mourning. It's a coping mechanism too. We try to find those moments, uh, those lighter moments, to help us get through. Because I, I mean, I've read several dark books. Like I remember reading um, "Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me," and she has some very dark humor in there. And yes, I think it's have. it's often necessary. I, you know, I love. I love Anna Paperni. I, I I don't know her um, now, but I did know her when she was a teenager. Her her dad, uh, David, is my partner's cousin. Oh. So I've, I've known the family in in a, a now and again kind of uh, get together at Passover way for 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 many years. But when I was at CBC uh, in the early days of a show called Crosswords, so in around like 1997, 1998. I, I was able to hire Anna to to write for us because I wanted to get a young person's voice on, and and she was you know, then I mean already a superstar, and, uh, so so thoughtful as a teenager. So I, I, I mean, her, 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 the, the book is a devastating read, but you know God God bless her for having the the courage and the and the moxie and the determination and just the brute, brute intelligence and investigative spirit to be able to examine her own ideology. You know, it's, it's a pretty fantastic piece of work. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, yeah. And, 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 and for sure, the, the, the humor is very dark. I mean, call it gallows humor if you want. Um, yeah. The stories also all take place in the West End and for anyone familiar with Vancouver, it has its own very unique and special culture. And that mm -hmm. culture has shifted and changed. And you comment on how that that shift and change is something people mourn in itself. And I was curious about why you decided to set the stories in um, the West End. And but I guess in the last one, we kind of take a detour to to Manitoba as well. Yeah, well, th that story was um, that's my favorite story in, in, in the collection, Sin, Error, Pining. And it's it's the one that was most rewritten, and no doubt I, I made the Manitoba setting because of my own connection to to Manitoba. I grew up in Winnipeg, and I uh, I haven't been able to this year, but for the last number of years I've I've lived for about six months in Manitoba, not in a city, but in a, in a little village, about uh, two and a half three hours west of Winnipeg, uh, in. Um, in yeah, south, southwest Manitoba, very beautiful, unsung part of the world. And so that was no doubt what was uh, influencing all of that. And in fact, the that that story about the, the, the near collision with the deer, well, that's a very usual driving on the prairies kind of experience. And and it's it's one I had not long before I, I reworked to the end of the story. Uh, one of the reasons I chose those sto the stories in the book, though, was because they all had this West End setting. So I, I just thought, okay, well, again, that's, I'm old fashioned and I was looking for unities and, and uh, I, that was, um, that was just one of them. And I, I suppose that the reason they were set there is because, again, it was not entirely, but in the main where I was living when at, over the various years that I was, that I was writing them. I mean, I lived in a lot of different places in, in, in Vancouver, but 
and I keep on returning to the West End like a salmon, but without the pleasure of spawning. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's, yeah, there, there's no, no real deep reason. I, 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 it's, it's a fascinating neighborhood and, and, and neighborhoods present themselves with uh, casts of characters. And it is a place about which people feel a certain kind of affection. It, it, uh, I, I live here now mostly out of habit as much as anything. And certainly in the last six months, I've, I've hardly strayed. I work you know, at a store a uh, whole food store that's three blocks from where I live. And that pretty much describes my village right now. Uh, that my, my little neighborhood west of Denman and the whole food, the whole foods a few blocks, a few blocks to the east. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been like everybody else, very, very circumscribed. But it is, it, it's, it, it's certainly a very different neighborhood than, than it was when I moved here in 1978. Inevitably, that's going to happen. It's a business that cities to change. And, and I think that most of the changes are, I don't know, for, I don't want to be judgmental and say they're for, for, for the better necessarily, but my sense is, and this is just my sense, I, I've got no way of saying this is so statistically or anything, um, but my sense is that it's a much more pluralistic place now than it was then. Certainly there are many, many, many more young families who live in, in the neighborhood. Uh, it's very usual now to see young moms or young dads with strollers say 15 or 20 years ago, there was a huge influx of, um, um, after the Balkan Wars, a huge influx of uh, Eastern Europeans in, into the West End. And, and that had a really interesting effect. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's seen its shifts. When I moved here in, in 78, and again, I was like in my early twenties and I was gay and I was obsessed with being gay. And, and so maybe that was all I saw, but it was, um, the, the, the neighborhood was mostly my sense of it was that it was mostly gay people and old people, and now I get to be both. <laughs> it is. It's such a special neighborhood. I find every I, you know, I live in Powell River now, and I lived in Vancouver for a long time. And reading these books always makes me nostalgic for my time in Vancouver. So I found that reading, reading your book, there's a special cameo in your book from your beloved dog, Esther Poundcake. And I was curious about why you included uh, that that character. And um, yeah, and just having those, if there's other cameos too that you decided to include. I can't remember if there are, uh, but, but yeah, Esther, oh, Esther. I loved Esther so much. Um, I've had dogs that's that's I, this is another big change in in the west end and, and not just because everybody got a puppy during the pandemic but um uh when when i first had a dog in the west end i can i think i can name the year it was 1989 and uh I, like I was, I was such an idiot i got this beautiful dog smoke was her name from the bay it was <laughs> the bay was doing one of those cross I want to say cross-promotional, but they, they were doing an event with the uh, SPCA, I guess. They had all these dogs in the window of the bay, uh, dogs and cats, and some window dresser had had done the, it was late fall, November time, and and, and the, this, this window dresser had done up all of the windows along the bay on Georgia Street as a kind of autumnal fairyland. They were beautiful, and you'd walk past, and there would be these forlorn creatures needing homes in the windows in, in amongst a lot of rustling leaves. 
Okay, so this, this, is, this is my name dropping story. So I was working at CBC at the time and I was, I was working as a producer on Vicky Gavaro's show. And it was Vicky who came into the office after walking past the bay and said, there's a dog there that somebody's got to adopt. And I thought, oh, a word from the boss. So long and short of it is I adopted Smoke. And the woman who arranged the adoption was the volunteer for the SPCA, was named Katie Wright who's since become a, a well-known, well-loved singing actor in Vancouver and who's the daughter of the writer, L.R. Wright. So it was like, it, it, it was very strange, all these things coming together around smoke. Anyway, I, I brought smoke home into the building where I was living where no pets were allowed. But eventually she, she was able to settle in there and I had her for a long time. And ever since then, I've had dogs. Esther came along at Easter. That's why she's called Esther. Um, she came along at Easter of 2009. And I got her from the, I was living in Strathcona at the time, just down the street from the uh, animal shelter, the city animal shelter. Anyway, she was a standard poodle. And I, I fell in love with her in a way that was so deep. She was the most fantastic creature. And uh, she died on June the 26th of 2018. That was the same day that my father died, not the same year, but the same day my father died. When, when, when she died, I, I just thought, well, I don't know, my, I felt like my life had changed. And it, well, obviously, obviously it had, but I, I thought I can never get another dog because I would inflict on that creature the expectation that it was always going to be another Esther, who, who was a creature of inestimable kindness. That was what she was more than anything else. She was a kind, kind dog. So Esther was on my mind a lot when I was excavating the past and looking at all these stories. And, and uh, yeah, on, on Andrea, on, who in addition to being the editor for the book, uh, also did the uh, cover and the illustrations that appear throughout. And one of them is one of the little fairies that chug between uh, the, well, the foot of the aquatic center and, and Granville Island or other destinations. And they have um, names on them. And this, the one on the back is Spirit of Esther. So that's how she appears on the book. And she's also named as my agent. Thanks so much to Bill for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. If you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. And if you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Julia Noble, whose book, The Mystery of Black Hollow Lane, was a finalist for the 2020 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast, and happy holidays.